If you have your Bibles this morning, take them if you would. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, where we will be spending our time together. The book of Colossians has, over the years, become a favorite of mine, uh, as I've had the privilege of studying and uh, teaching uh, the scriptures as a pastor and as a Christian. And I think it's a favorite because it sort of encapsulates in uh, a short amount of space, four brief chapters, uh, the sweep of something that is very, very uh, profound uh, in the Christian life. And that is the marriage uh, between doctrine and Christian living, doctrine and, and duty, uh, we might say. Like many of Paul's letters, Colossians seems to follow a fairly typical pattern of beginning with some great uh, doctrinal teaching, uh, stretching to the heights of uh, Christology in the case of the book of Colossians, and also uh, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology in chapter 2. And then it moves out from that uh, to connect that with the practical side of the Christian life, which I find is a tremendous problem in the Christian community. Uh, most people fall on one side of that equation. They're doctrinally or oriented on the one hand, or they're very practical on the other. And there is somewhat of a disconnect between the two. But in the scripture, they're married together. The one uh, begets the other. Doctrine produces uh, a certain living. Sound doctrine uh, produces sound living. False doctrine produces a sort of diseased or sick expression of faith. But the scripture would have us to connect these uh, in our minds and begin by understanding all that the Bible has to say about these great doctrinal themes that are central to the Christian faith and then to grow out of that into a practical living. I was reading uh, some time back in a commentary on Colossians and I came across this assessment, which I think is very, very helpful, uh, kind of describing what I've just talked about. It comes from Homer Kent. He says, many Christians have a problem with the Christian life. After the passing of time, their faith seems to lose its attractiveness, and initial enthusiasm dwindles away, and the excitement over their new commitment no longer seems as stimulating. As a result, some have become disillusioned. They've regarded Christianity simply as a creed, a statement of beliefs to be acknowledged, but nothing more than that. And their lives soon settle down into their previous routines, and people observing them would never suspect that they were Christians. Frequently, however, they're not content to live with their present needs unsatisfied. And having found mere creedal statements empty of any real dynamic for living, they begin to search for something else. And wherever such a search develops, someone in some movement inevitably arises to meet it. Every cult that has plagued the Christian church developed because there were Christians who failed to understand what true Christian faith really means. Nearly every new formula for Christian living or secret of success is an effort to capitalize on the dissatisfaction of Christians who somehow failed to understand what the Bible teaches about the Christian life. But he goes on and says this, Scripture is clear that there is a practical side to Christian doctrine. Christianity is not just a creed, it is a way. 
In fact, that was one of the earliest names the Christians used for their movement. You can see that frequently in the book of Acts. Conversion, he says, implies a changed life, and consequently the believer must never forget that his salvation experience involves much more than just a past event in his life. That was merely just the beginning. The new birth initiates the believer into a life to be lived. It provides the dynamic to energize the new life and continual guidance from the scripture to direct it along the proper channels. And only when the Christian ignores what God has provided does he find his Christian faith a disappointment. I want to draw our attention this morning to a passage that I think helps resolve that tension that Kent is talking about between doctrine and Christian living. It's found in the third chapter of this uh, letter that Paul has written to the Colossian congregation. You can follow along as I read the text. I'll just read the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes these words. He says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Would you just uh, pray with me as we uh, consider the Lord's words this morning? Father, we come at this time to... Ask your blessing on our study of your word. As the modern hymn has put it so eloquently, would you speak to us, O God? This is your word. We receive it as such. And our prayer this morning is that your spirit who indwells us would tune our ears to the sound of your voice that we might hear but that we would be more than hearers, that our will would also be moved, that we might be doers of your word, that we might bring its truths again with the help of your Holy Spirit to bear upon our lives, that we would be transformed more into the likeness of Christ. We long for this, Lord, not only is it for our soul's good, but it is for Uh, the good of the furtherance of the gospel of Christ as we endeavor to make Christ known in this world that does not know him. And ultimately, we trust that this will redound for your glory, Christ, for we ask it in your name. Amen. This text in Colossians 3 that I've just read for us this morning Uh, really is a transitional text. It's a bridge moving from that doctrinal portion of the letter to the practical portion. In fact, you can see that if you were to go on and read in chapter 3. Paul begins to talk about all sorts of things like our attitudes and the way we conduct ourselves in relationships with other uh, other people, family life, what work looks, uh, what the Christian life looks like in the workplace, whether you are an employer or an employee, what our lives ought to look like as Christians uh, with respect to unbelievers in the world around us. All of that is intensely practical. And it fits together then with the doctrinal side of this letter by way of these four verses at the beginning of chapter 3, which have as their emphasis 
the life of uh, the mind in the Christian life. That is what is in view here. The way that we think about things. That is the way that we take great doctrinal truths and process, process them in a practical way has everything to say then about the outcome of our faith as it is expressed uh, practically. Now, what I find interesting about this text is that uh, Paul uh, argues for a particular practice on the part of believers, namely, uh, as he puts it at the end of verse 1, uh, that we keep seeking the things above. He reiterates uh, even more forcefully in verse 2, uh, setting our mind on the things above. That is the command that he lays before us. But he roots these things in both past realities and future realities. And so we see sort of this uh, past, present, and future connection in this passage. And it is as if Paul is saying to us, as believers in Christ, you must live in the present, but never lose sight of the fact that something significant has been accomplished in the past, which has implications for the present, and something significant is going to take place in the future, which has implications for the present. And so that is the way that he argues uh, in this sort of bridge that he lays for us between the doctrinal and the practical. So let's look at it uh, along those lines and consider, first of all, what we might call our present uh, responsibility. Again, looking at verses 1 and 2. Paul begins by saying this, uh, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, uh, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand that this uh, is Paul's way, again, of drawing our minds in to think about what he said before and to prepare for what he's about to say. That's what the word uh, therefore means. He's drawing our attention back to everything that he's written in this letter up to this point. And I might summarize it by saying this. He's presented in this letter a high view of Jesus Christ. We see that, for example, in verse one, begin, or chapter 1, beginning verse 15. Speaking of Christ, Paul says, "...he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation." For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything." For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Paul is saying that we have in Christ uh, the Lord of glory, who is the sovereign God over creation in the first place and then over salvation in the second place. A high view of Jesus Christ is uh, what he's arguing for. And then he argues for a right understanding of the doctrine of salvation in chapter 2. Look at verse 6. He says, Therefore, if you, as you have received 
uh, Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And see to it, he says, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And here's the critical part. And in him, you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The point that he's making is that Christ is not only the Savior, but if you are a Christian, it is because by virtue of your faith in Christ, you have been brought into union with Christ. God has chosen to identify you with Christ so that in a very real sense, spiritually speaking, when Christ died, you died. And when Christ was buried, you were buried. And when Christ was raised up to a new life, you too were raised up to a new life. All that language that he's using here in chapter 2 about circumcision is not referring to the Old Testament rite. It's a metaphor that he's using here to speak of the death Uh, of Christ, and then, of course, his burial and his resurrection. And the believer is bound up with Christ in all of those things. So those are his doctrinal arguments. And he says, you take all of that, and that then is going to move us into a practical expression of Christian living. And here is the connection. He says, if you have been raised up with Christ, uh, then you ought to do these things. Now, again, He's simply reminding us as believers that all that he said about Christ and salvation generally uh, applies to you and I uh, particularly, individually, as Christians. If you have been raised up with Christ, might better be translated, in fact, it really should be translated this way, since you have been raised up with Christ. This is one of those uh, areas in our New Testament where sometimes Uh, Going from Greek to English, we can't really capture the full weight uh, of translation because of the grammatical construction, but the way that Paul frames this up, uh, translated here, if you've been raised up with Christ, it's a conditional statement that doesn't leave open the possibility of its fulfillment. It assumes that it is true, in other words. So he's really saying, since you have been raised up with Christ... He wants you and I to be mindful uh, on a regular basis of our identification with Christ, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, never forget this, have been raised up to a new life. The old man is dead and buried And the new man has been resurrected with the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it elsewhere, uh, if any man is in Christ, 
Uh, He is a new uh, creature, a new creation. Uh, The old is gone and the new has come. That's sort of the cue here that that Paul is giving us uh, to move us from doctrine uh, to practice. He says, that being the case, and it is a settled fact, then you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. And that is this. We have been given a command here by the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to engage in a particular manner of living which revolves around our thinking first. We are, he says, to keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, this is the meat uh, of this particular text, along with verse 2. This is the real takeaway that Paul wants us to have. As Christians who have uh, not only died with Christ and been buried with Christ, but raised up with Christ to a new life, we are to keep seeking the things above. Present tense verb, it implies not a one-time action, uh, but a, a continual, habitual manner of living. It is a call to a new lifestyle, a new paradigm for thinking. The word itself, uh, seeking, uh, carries with it the idea of aiming for something or striving after something. And so the emphasis here at this point is on our uh, efforts, um, directing all of our energies, if you will, toward a particular goal. And he tells us what that goal is. We're to be pursuing something. And he simply defines it as uh, the things above. The things above. Interesting statement. Uh, It's not a very specific statement on the face of it. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, clearly he defines the things above as those things that are commensurate with heaven. We know that because he tells us that these things above are the things where Christ is, and they are the things where he, Christ, is seated presently at the right hand of God. And then in verse 2, he distinguishes these things above from the things uh, that are on earth. What Paul is saying to you and I as Christians, friends, is this, that we are to be in the regular habit of cultivating a mindset that revolves around, uh, you might call them the priorities uh, of heaven, heavenly priorities, heavenly realities, in contrast to those that are earthly and temporal. We're not to be burdened with those earthly things, but we're to focus on heaven's realities. And this, of course, is in direct contrast to the way that we lived before we came to faith in Christ. As we just read a few moments ago, back in chapter 2, in verse 8, and also in uh, verse 10, or excuse me, verse 20, uh, which we didn't read, we are reminded that apart from Christ, our minds are governed by what Paul calls the elementary uh, principles of the world. These are uh, temporal ideas. These are skewed philosophies 
uh, about eternal realities. These are those kinds of motivations that govern us that are not connected in any real way to ultimate reality. So, We might conclude from that that apart from Christ, it's fair to say we were bound up in the world's uh, ideas of religion, which encompass every kind of effort to get to God that is self-generated. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but there really are only uh, two kinds of religion in the world, right? There is biblical Christianity, and there is everything else. And I'm I'm not trying to be flippant about it, but everything else is some sort of man Uh, concocted effort to lift oneself to God. But the Christian faith says we could never do such a thing, but we have a substitute in Christ who, as the sinless Son of God, has given his life an atoning sacrifice for us, and that alone then uh, provides for us the requisite merit for the forgiveness of our sin and uh, acceptance by the God of heaven. Those are the only two options out there. And so apart from Christ, we're bound up in the option of, uh, of the religion of self-effort. But in Christ, uh, we're no longer bound by that system because God has accomplished for us what we could never attain to for ourselves. And so we've been set free in that regard to pursue righteousness, not in order to obtain salvation, but uh, because we have been saved. So we're not to be uh, bound up in this temporal, uh, earthly, uh, elementary kind of thinking. We're to sort of take truths that the Bible teaches about God, about Christ, about salvation, and about all of the other things that make up the doctrinal underpinning of the Christian faith, and we are to cultivate then a mindset that is connected to those realities as a priority over earthly realities. And I love the qualifiers that Paul uses here. When he speaks about the things above, he talks about them being where Christ is seated uh, at the right hand of God. This is a familiar sounding phrase, and immediately I suspect that your mind runs to the right place, but in the event that it doesn't, Uh, All that Paul is telling us here is that these things are in heaven because that is, in fact, the clear teaching of the New Testament that Jesus Christ at this present moment is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. Um, What's fascinating to me about this is Paul has already talked about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. We saw that in chapter 2. But he's really kind of drawing our attention to uh, the full-orbed picture here of Christ, which involves also his ascension. It's part of the deal. Uh, The incarnation of Christ, which gives way uh, to the crucifixion of Christ, then the burial of Christ, and then three days later, gloriously, the resurrection of Christ. But the full picture isn't completed until we add that event that took place 40 days after the resurrection of Christ, uh, when Jesus was gloriously ascended into heaven in the presence of his first followers who were gathered there in Jerusalem. In fact, Uh, That very event is talked about uh, in the book of Acts, and uh, we are reminded of the scene that those first followers 
beheld when Christ went back to heaven. He had given them final instructions in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 says that after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. It was an amazing scene. Uh, Christ, of course, had laid aside at the incarnation uh, some of his glory, veiled it, we like to say in theological terms, he, uh, which, is, which means that he, he simply chose as uh, the divine uh, second person of the Godhead not to have or utilize uh, a full um, exercise of his divine prerogatives. Uh, there are times that we read about Christ when uh, he is uh, pictured, of course, as a man, but not uh, tapping into his divine prerogatives. Sometimes uh, he asks questions. Uh, sometimes uh, he uh, suffers uh, under the uh, oppressive behavior of other people. Jesus did not, in the incarnation, always conduct himself as he might freely have as uh, one who was fully God. And so he laid aside, in that sense, some of uh, his glory. But at the ascension, uh, the full glory of Christ was returned as he went into heaven, and there he remains to this day until that time when the Scripture uh, indicates to us that he will uh, return. By the way, the ascension of Christ uh, was not an afterthought to the story. Uh, This was something that had been uh, planned from eternity past. It was always part uh, of God's design. And even as early as Psalm 110, we, we find a hint uh, of prediction uh, about Christ's return to heaven. It's in that text that David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The glorious resurrected and ascended and ultimately conquering Christ was uh, predicted in the Old Testament. It's worth noting that Jesus himself repeated in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, that same psalm, and he applied it to himself. In Luke chapter 22, verse 69, Jesus also uh, foretold uh, his resurrection. Acts 1, as we just read, gives us the historic account of his resurrection and the scripture's testimony is replete uh, with uh, the argument, with the affirmation that Jesus Christ is, in fact, presently located in heaven. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 7 all affirm this truth. Paul reiterates it in Romans 8, Ephesians 1, the writer of Hebrews on several occasions, Peter himself in 1 Peter chapter 3. All of these point to the fact that Jesus Christ is currently in heaven. Now, why is this significant then uh, for this matter of seeking the things above uh, where Christ is seated at the right hand with God? Because of what I've already said, in Christ, that phrase itself tells that we have been united with Jesus, identified with Jesus Christ by God the Father, and 
just as in our identification with Christ, we were crucified, buried, and resurrected, so too, in a real sense, spiritually speaking, we have been raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we've been raised up with him and he has seated us with him, that is, with uh, the Lord himself in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's something of a platitude to say as Christians, right, that our home is in heaven and we are just uh, sojourners here on earth. But it is a truth. It is a reality. And it is a reality that you and I uh, accept by faith. We do not see it yet at this point by sight, but it is a reality uh, nonetheless. And so when Paul says, keep seeking the things above, He's making a very practical connection to these doctrinal truths. If it's true that Jesus was crucified, buried, uh, raised, and ascended, and if it's true that you are identified with Christ, uh, united with Christ by God, then it is of practical uh, importance that you live that out and you set your mind on the things above rather than on the things above of this earth, which is what he says in verse 2. We talked this weekend, the men and I, about the uh, relationship that exists between uh, thinking and doing. You cannot mistake it uh, in the New Testament. It is all over the place. Uh, What we think, what we believe, uh, gives uh, direction to the things that we do. For example, Paul gives this Uh, instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Timothy, you're to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, and you're to persevere in these things, for as you do this, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So there's these two parts that Paul lays before Timothy, your teaching, that is your doctrine, what you believe, what you think, and your life. And they go together uh, hand in glove. And if you're out of balance on either one of those, then things are not going to be uh, the way that they should. And it all starts with the mind. That's why Paul uh, reiterates the point here back in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Uh, he, he states the command again a little bit differently. He says here that you are to set your mind on the things above. A little bit different uh, term, uh, and the emphasis here, I think, is not so much on uh, marshalling our energies toward the accomplishment of the goal, but he's really wanting to draw our, 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 our perspective back to what we think about. That's what he's saying when he says, set your mind, fix your mind on these things. Have you ever heard the phrase that You know, that guy is so uh, heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good. You heard that phrase? It's not true. It's not true. It's uh, one of those uh, phrases that we sometimes import into the Christian lexicon and we build our lives around them only to discover that it's not what the Bible teaches at all. In fact, if we are to uh, understand correctly what Paul is saying here is if you don't Uh, set your mind in heaven, 
you're not going to be of any earthly good. The way that you live your life as a Christian on this earth is to have your mind fixed upon heaven's realities and heaven's priorities, and that's what enables you to live a life unto the glory of Christ on earth. That's the present responsibility. That's the command. That's the practical takeaway of Paul's argument here in these four verses. That's how doctrine interfaces with Christian living. It does so in the arena of the mind and allowing truths that are realities uh, reserved in heaven, if you will, to govern the daily activities of our lives. Now, secondly, he moves from our present responsibility to our past reality. He says in verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's an amazing statement. Again, he's just marshalling to mind here all of these great reminders about doctrinal truth. You have died, Paul says. How do we know that? We know that because Christ has died. And we know that God has said that through faith you are united with Christ. And so you, as a Christian, I, as a Christian, have died, spiritually speaking. It's the same truth that Paul famously states in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You get the connection? You've died. Your past sinful life, your old sinful self has been crucified and put in the grave, and a new self has been resurrected, that has all of the practical implication in the world. It means that if you are a Christian uh, trusting Jesus as your Savior, then you must now understand that you are to live a life that is bound up in pursuing God's glory, not your own like the old man used to pursue. As a Christian, uh, you have renounced your right to self-rule and you have yielded yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, it's not your life anymore that you're living, but it's Christ's life through you that is on display. I love this next little phrase. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a beautiful statement. It means... That, of course, not only is our life hidden with Christ in God in the sense of security, that uh, our spiritual life is literally uh, uh, with Christ in heaven. Nothing can get in there and take it away from us. It's, it's sort of a, uh, a hinting at the, the great doctrine of eternal security here. But it, it has another side to it as well. Your life is hidden um, uh, with Christ in God in the sense that the things you believe, the things we believe as Christians that govern our behavior make absolutely no sense to the fallen world around us because they can't see them. They can't see them. Have you thought about that? As a Christian, 
You accept by faith a good many truths that govern your life that are unknowable through the normal human senses of sight and smell and sound and taste and touch. They're spiritual realities. They're not yet tangible realities. And so when you talk about the things of heaven, and when you talk about living a life that's pure and yielded uh, to the Lord, and your unbelieving neighbor looks at you with a strange uh, look on his or her face, it's because you're talking a foreign language that just doesn't translate. You're talking about things that nobody can see. They, nobody can see. They, they think maybe you're a little bit schizophrenic, honestly. But you know what they don't know. You know that Christ really did die, and that Christ really is in heaven, and that he really did save you, and that he really will make good on his promise to bring that salvation to completion. You know that the things you accept now by faith, you will one day confirm by sight. That's what he's talking about when he says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. These are past realities, by the way, the Uh, Again, the grammar and uh, the verbal tenses here affirm that uh, these are are settled facts. Not only is it settled that Christ died, but it is a settled, settled fact that through faith in Christ, you also have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. It's a past event uh, with continuing implications on your life today. So, we have this present responsibility Uh, to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above. And this is rooted in these past realities uh, revolving around Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and our union with him. But there's also this final third piece that Paul uh, attaches to this, and that is what we might call our promised revelation. Look at verse 4 quickly. Paul says, when Christ, uh, who is our life, is uh, revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There's a lot here. I know our time is up, so we won't be able to bring it all out, But um, which is always what preachers say just when they've run out of material. <laughs> but what he says here is astounding, and I don't know that in our contemporary Christian context we really grasp the weight of this. He's talking about the return of Christ. That's what he has in mind when he talks about Christ being revealed. It's it's all that's bound up in that statement from the angels to the disciples at the ascension to Christ that in the same way he left, he's going to come again. It's all that's bound up in the New Testament's teaching about the coming of Christ when he will set his foot upon this earth finally and conquer his enemies and establish his kingdom and his glory will be evident. The world does not know the glory of Christ right now. They have been blinded, according to Paul, in uh, his correspondence with the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 4, he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The glory of Christ is eclipsed in the world today. You know that. You understand that. You don't have to look uh, any further than your own neighborhood, perhaps, or maybe even your own home, 
or maybe in some ways even your own heart, to know that the glory of Christ has been eclipsed for a time. But when he returns, the Bible makes it clear uh, that everyone will see him uh, for who he is, and his glory will be evident. It will be uh, revealed, as Paul says it here. Again, another doctrinal truth. But here's the beauty of it. When that happens, really probably should be translated whenever it happens, because the happening of it isn't in question. The only question is the timing of it. So at the time that this happens, Paul says, you too, Christian, you also will be revealed with him in glory. What does this mean? It means this. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. All these truths that govern your life now are heavenly realities that you take by faith. But on that day, at the return of Christ, all will be made evident. Not only to you and I, our our faith will become sight, but to the world around us. That same neighbor who looks at you like you're schizophrenic because you believe the things that you believe and you do the things that you do as a response a response to that belief, will see you for who you really are. You won't look like quite the fool that you do now. It'll be clear. All these things that you've entrusted to Christ will be made known. The statement will be given and the investment that you've made in Christ will produce the desired dividend. You will be revealed with him in glory. Now, here's the beautiful thing about all of this. That's not just a future reality, but again, it has an impact on the way that we as Christians live our life today because we live in light of the soon return of Christ And we want the world to see the glory of Christ. And though they cannot see it clearly now, they will see it then. But they can see it in part. And part of the way that they see it now is through you and through me, brother Christian, sister Christian. As we are transformed into the image of Christ, listen to Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, we all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So as you grow as a Christian, as you involve yourself in the life of this beloved and blessed church, as you give yourself to the Word of God and let it wash over you and change you, you are looking more and more every day like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when your neighbor looks at you a little bit strange, the fact of the matter is that he's seeing in you a little glimpse of heaven. And it is our prayer, of course, that God will use that in the lives of those near to us to make them long for Christ and to look to Christ as their Savior as well. Oh, you're going to be revealed in glory when Christ comes in his glory. But even now, you are being progressively transformed into the glorious image of Jesus Christ through his spirit 
uh, indwelling you, taking his word and washing you, sanctifying you as you put off sin and you put on righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ is made evident to those around you. So Christianity is more than a set of creeds, though it's certainly not less than that. I uh, hope nobody here is on a campaign to you know, go down with doctrine, right? It's important. Doctrine's important. But Christianity is more than that. Christianity is a life-transforming reality. It produces a changed life. It produces a changed life that is rooted in doctrinal truths. And that present life change that you are undergoing as a Christian is rooted in those past realities. It's rooted in future realities. And both of them together with one voice are saying to us this morning, live for Christ's glory in the present Live for Christ's glory, looking to your new life in in, in Christ uh, that was begun at salvation and will be consummated in the future glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Present responsibility, live for his glory because you're identified with Christ. You died, you were buried, you were raised up, And you're a resident of heaven, and you're just right now in that place where you're living on earth, anticipating your heavenly home going, and you're doing that so that Christ might be made known uh, to this world that does not know him. Pray with me, would you? Father, it is always... A benediction to our souls to hear and consider your word and to do so in the context of a Christian community. We gather such as we are this morning, Lord, to remind us, to remind ourselves of these things that we hold so dear that it is a reality that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became a man and lived on this earth, and though he had no sin of his own uh, for which to make atonement, he gave his life an atoning sacrifice, dying and being buried, but not remaining in the grave, but being raised up powerfully, having conquered death and sin, and then gloriously being ascended back to his heavenly home where he is today. It is important, Lord, for us to remember these things, but it is just as important for us to remember that we are bound up with that as well. Christ is our life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are no longer living for our own selves, our own gain, our own glory, but for that of Christ. That's what these truths remind us of. And how precious, Lord, that we can remind ourselves that you, Jesus, are coming again. We do long for that day, Lord. We find ourselves living life in this fallen and broken world through a veil of tears, as it were, crying out with the saints, Uh, Through the ages, Maranatha, come quickly. 
Lord Jesus. We know that it is coming, but we do not know the timing, but we know, Lord, that it will happen and you will be revealed in that day in all your glory and we will be revealed for who we really are in that day as well. But my prayer, Lord, for all of us this morning as your children would be that your spirit would seal to our minds and our hearts the connection between these truths and today. All of this says we are to live in the present in light of who Christ is and what he's done and in light of his soon glorious return. And it is a privilege, Lord, you are still gathering your church, you are still putting together the company of the redeemed, and you have chosen to use the means of redeemed saints like us to carry the gospel forward. And so it is that we offer ourselves anew today as a living sacrifice to live for your glory, Christ, that the world might look upon us and see Jesus and come to know him as their Savior and bow before him as their glorious Lord. As such, we ask you to do these things, Lord, for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.